You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Colombia has a new president. My guests Jeffrey Howard and Sebastian Borger will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including US President Donald Trump's curious indignation at his own border policies, the arrest of one of the world's most powerful auto executives, and... Mr. Gotti, are you the head of the Gambino crime family? The head of my family. Mrs. Gotti, do you know what your husband does for a living? He provides. John's getting too much press. That can't go unchecked. John Travolta's John Gotti biopic gets the same treatment from film critics as John Gotti's business rivals got from John Gotti's henchmen. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Geoffrey Howard, lecturer in political theory at University College London, and Sebastian Borger, London correspondent for Berliner Zeitung. Welcome both. And we start in Colombia, which now knows the name of its new president following yesterday's second round runoff. As was widely predicted, it was won handily by Ivan Duque, both a relative conservative and a relative newcomer to politics. Duque's acceptance speech was long on the usual things politicians say in such circumstances, promising to unite the country bring people together and so forth, but did acknowledge the unusual background to this election. President-elect Duque says he wants changes made to the peace agreement which ended Colombia's interminable civil war in 2016. Um, Jeffrey, his his basic thing is that he, he seems to be among those Colombians who thought that the rebels in uh, the FARC group who had waged war against Colombia for the, the thick end of half a century got off a bit lightly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that while we may view him as a quite controversial figure for this reason, the position that he represents is a pretty popular one inside of Colombia. It's popular in that he's questioning whether members of the FARC should have seats reserved for them in the Congress. It's popular in that he thinks that some of the people who engaged in some pretty grievous violence probably deserve some greater punishment than the deal allows. And so I think the kinds of changes to the deal that he's contemplating are, are ones that are going to um, certainly be popular along his particular demog- his particular base within Colombia. But I, I do think that they'll run the risk of, of destabilizing and, and possibly crashing this deal. Uh, Sebastian, as a, a general rule, not just in Colombia, but around the world, do governments and politicians engaged in the high-minded uh, statecraft of, of peace agreements and so forth, do they often underestimate what public anger remains? I'm not sure whether they often underestimate it, but in this case, as Jeffrey has pointed out, I mean, we've had a referendum on this, on the first um, deal uh, that was, re- and the first deal was rejected. Then, then there was a little bit of rewriting, and 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 it was voted through Parliament in Colombia without asking the people again. No, no, I think there are other situations. You know, the Basque Country or or, or Northern Ireland, which of course is nearest to to hear where where clearly the the vast majority of the population was very keen on getting 
uh, on getting a deal and was was willing and able to swallow very bitter pills. Um, it, it is just that balance, isn't it, between it is anger at what has yes. happened and, and desire for it all to stop. Yes, and, and clearly they, I mean, I, I have to say I'm not... Uh, I'm not so familiar with the details, but clearly they got the details wrong because otherwise the the people wouldn't have rejected it. Um, and 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 Duque's election to some extent is is a is um, is following from that. Although I think it's also fair to say that his rival in the runoff was was just perceived by by a big part of Colombia's population as being too left-wing and too sort of Venezuela-like. You know, let's remember, Colombia's borders Venezuela, well, so they indeed. have a pretty good idea of, of what's going on there. Jeffrey, uh, if, if President-elect Duque is, is going to take a harder line on, on what remains of, of FARC or whatever they now choose to call themselves, hopefully something which is a little easier to pronounce without having to concentrate quite so hard, uh, do they actually have a negotiating position? Will he think he is in a position of strength because at this point what can FARC threaten my way of by way of retaliation if he comes up with something they don't like well it's true I mean he's in a pretty powerful position he certainly won the election handily he won it by 12 points 54% of the vote he's young he's charismatic he's 41 years old he uh, he had a rock band in high school so I think he appeals <laughs> to the to the youth and, and look he's, he's casting himself not as some kind of far-right zealot but as a pretty pragmatic centrist candidate he's certainly popular with the business community Community, and he's favoring all the standard tax cuts that a that a, a ordinary center right politician um, would tend to favor. Um, he's been mentored by a former president, so he's got pretty deep connections within the Colombian political establishment. And, and I'd say that he's in a pretty strong bargaining position. Isn't that the problem? Uh, Jeffrey mentioned the former president Uribe, uh, still still uh, uh, the strongman of Colombian politics. This guy, Duque, will have to get out of Uribe's shadow. I think that's, that's going to be his main task in the next year because, um, I, you know, to, 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 to do what he promised to do, namely bring people together, you've got to acknowledge your debt to Uribe, but at the same time say, I am, an, I am my own man. And, and, and because otherwise he, he, he'll be in danger of being a Medvedev to, 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 to Uribe's Putin, you know, so um, I think that's the interesting thing to watch. Okay, well, let's move along now and look at the United States, where many people have lately grown concerned about the practice of separating families who enter the country illegally at the Mexican border. Among Americans anguished about this policy appears, judging by his Twitter feed, to be President Donald Trump, who has spent the morning demanding that the laws should be changed. If only there was some way he was able to get in touch with someone occupying a position of some influence in American politics. And while Trump is doubtless used to having one first lady arrayed against him, he now faces two, Laura Bush having joined Melania Trump in expressing concern. Um, Jeffrey, first of all, there has been a great deal of claim and counterclaim about this as there now is about literally everything that happens in America. What do we understand of what is actually going on? So we know that during April and May alone, something like 2,000 children were ripped away from their parents as part of a new initiative that seems to be a conscious decision, a deliberate decision by the Trump administration to adopt what some members of the administration have called a zero-tolerance policy at the border, whereby anyone who crosses the border, even though illegal entry of the United States is only a misdemeanor and you can be let off with a fine, they've chosen to pursue the maximum that the law allows, which is to uh, arrest people um, and 
charge them with with full criminal penalties. And if you arrest someone and take them to a jail, well, you can't take their kids with you. Now, I think what's most disheartening about this is that it's not just that they've decided to um, uh, criminally prosecute all adults illegally entering the country, and that is a regrettable side effect of that. They have to detain the children. It looks like they're doing it precisely so that they can inflict this pain of detaining the children. So the comments made by Attorney General Jeff Sessions and uh, Trump's advisor, Stephen Miller, suggest that they're deliberately harming the children as a way of trying to get the Democrats to come back to the negotiating table and help Trump fund his wall and pursue other initiatives. Certainly, Trump's comment in the recent days supports that interpretation. So, yeah, we're seeing nothing short of the creation of various camps being built in the Texan desert. They're calling them tent cities, but they're awfully reminiscent of concentration camps with cages in them. And they're putting as many as thousands of children in them. Just to follow that up quickly, Jeffrey, is it therefore your contention that Trump's insistence that this is a Democrat policy and he is absolutely powerless to do anything about it is a trifle ingenuous? Yeah, I think so. I think he's completely lying about that. There's no reason to think it's a Democratic policy or a Democratic law. There's also no reason to think that it's a law. It's not a law. It's a deliberate decision by the administration um, to split up families at the border. And all Trump would need to do to stop it is to pick up the phone. Um, Sebastian, it, it has often in the last year and a half or so of Trump's uh, administration being very hard to tell where the needle is in that on that spectrum between mendacity and incompetence. Uh, wh- where do you see it here? Mendacity, clearly. Um, I, I was reminded, I've, I've recently seen a play called Building the Wall in, in a theatre here in London, the Park Theatre, which was chilling in, in, exa- in describing exactly that, a concentration camp in the, I think, Texan or Nevadan desert, I can't remember, um, where, which then leads to terrible consequences, um, which we won't go into. But but um, th- th- this seems to be, you know, fic- reality overtaking fiction here. Um, it's, 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 but, you know, you have to say that, that this is what... Uh, um, American voters, I was going to say by majority, no, not by majority, but quite a few of them wanted. That that was what, what Trump promised them. Uh, indeed. So, Jeffrey, do you discern any echo here of a, a technique we've seen from Trump a few times now in which that he, he causes a problem uh, and which is obviously therefore fairly easy to solve, it being fairly easy to solve problems you've caused and then claims great credit for having solved the problem and being the great problem solver, by which by which, by which indeed I guess I'm asking is, is it unimaginable that in the next few days in order to look like the big hearted magnanimous statesman he doubtless perceives himself as he will throw this 180 degrees and go back in the other direction. It's totally possible. I mean, what's striking is that Trump was willing to negotiate with Democrats on the DACA issue. These were the the children of of undocumented workers who came into the United States when they were very, very young, who had been given protection by Obama. And Trump was ready to strike a deal with uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, arguing that um, uh, that Uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, arguing that uh, he would happily give the DACA kids protection in exchange for Democrats supporting funding for the border wall. And just before they did it, Stephen Miller, Trump's very anti-immigrant aide, said to him, no, we need even more. We need restrictions on legal immigration. And so Trump crashed the deal and the DACA kids remain in peril. So I think Trump might see the possibility of a deal um, with Democrats uh, who are desperate, of course, to stop this injustice. But it's totally possible that Trump is so cruel 
unstable and so useless as a politician that he'll let the opportunity go away. And we might see this kind of horrific phenomenon continuing for months or even over a year. Uh, Sebastian, President Trump, as you will doubtless be aware, has found the time this morning to take a a, a swipe uh, at your own home country. He is uh, talking about the people of Germany turning against their leader in a response to crime being way up. Uh, We should point out that Germany's current crime rate is the lowest it has been recorded since 1992. Um, Is it true? Are are you among your people currently in a state of uproar and revolt uh, against your leader? Are Are you off out of here to erect a barricade outside the embassy? I wonder whether Angela Merkel hasn't actually asked Donald Trump to send that to <laughs> well, That was actually my follow-up question. Has he done her a massive favour? I think so. I think so. You know, look, uh, th- th- there, is a, there is a problem um, which is nowhere near as big as he makes out. The problem is that um, the, the population is very sceptical of Angela Merkel's uh, refugee policy, which, of course, t- let's remember that, after that initial opening of the borders in in the autumn of 2015, she's moved far, far, far away from that. I mean, Germany's uh, immigration policy is now very tough. And, and, and what they're arguing about within the uh, conservative grouping is uh, are minor details, really. Um, and... and uh, Nevertheless, it was a it was a crisis. They they have now sort of kicked it down uh, in, into the long grass for for at least for a fortnight, and um, and I think Trump. As I honestly, I think um, anything that Trump says against Merkel will will um, bring everybody else into her camp. Well, I guess it's it's the political equivalent of that that period in which he was he was frequently beating up on various media outlets and authors that displeased him, all of whose sales and subscriptions went through the roof. It remains, I think, every author's wildest dream to get hate tweeted by by Donald Trump. But um, uh, Jeffrey, there is a. I mean, they're an interesting compare and contrast at the moment, the United States and Germany, because they have at various points in recent history taken very opposite approaches to dealing with large-scale uh, immigration, which is not, um, well, let, let's call it not regulated. Uh, Germany opened its borders, at least for a period. The United States appears to be trying to close it. But has anybody, at least any Western democracy, found a satisfactory way of dealing with the fact that whether local populations are right or wrong, there's a genuine widespread discomfort with the idea of large-scale immigration that gives the impression of being unregulated and uncontrolled. For sure. I mean, I think until the... um disruptions generated by economic globalization, which have made life very difficult for people from traditional uh, working communities across the West, are adequately addressed by economic policy, I think immigrants will remain um, a perennial scapegoat, even in countries where they contribute to economic growth and aren't taking the jobs of of native workers. So I, I don't think any any country has faced this this problem has has arrived at an adequate solution to this problem yet. I must say that the contrast between Angela Trump and uh, Angela Trump, uh, Angela Merkel and Donald <laughs> Trump is quite striking because we used to call the president of the United States the leader of the free world, and now it may well be that that she's the one that that holds that mantle. Although I think Justin Trudeau is is hoping he can have it. I mean, Sebastian, on that subject, d- did 
Angela Merkel managed to sell the idea of immigration as a positive when she opened those borders a few years ago. Was she trying to sell it to German people as this is a good thing, this is an opportunity, or was she just saying this is just something we have to deal with? That's the latter. So it's uh, still being presented as a problem? The pro- yes, yes. And, and uh, I mean, I think, honestly, that increasingly we see, and, and we are in the, I think there's no doubt that we are in the twilight of her reign. Um, so the free world really really needs to find someone else. I, I would suggest Macron. But um, um, what she what she doesn't, simply doesn't do is get up and explain her policies. Um, she, she is, she is that, that, that's always been her style. You know, you, ca- you can't, she's, what, 62? She'll ch- she won't change it, that's for sure. But that is the problem of her, of, of the last three years. Had she got up and said, look, this is, this is as you say, an opportunity, as well as, as well as a difficulty. Had she also at the beginning said, uh, we are, this is an exceptional situation, and there are s- quite a few people who will have to go again, uh, rather than just saying, we want everyone in. I think um, the population's mood would be quite different. Just finally on this, Jeffrey, it's a a terrible, terrible question to ask people about American politics right now, for which so apologies in advance. But how does this play out? Does does there become a a, is there going to be a a popular backlash as there was to the initial stages of Trump's Muslim (laughs) travel ban? Is he going to try and turn this around to his own political advantage while blaming everybody else? What happens? It's all in the hands of elected Republicans, and elected Republicans up until now have been completely (laughs) silent about it. Speaker Ryan tweeted out a little YouTube video on Twitter about um, Father's Day and how he was spending the day relishing his his time as a father. No reference to the fathers being ripped from their kids at the southern border, which psychologists are, are clear will cause lifelong damage to these young children. The kind of toxic stress is the term they use in the brain, inhibits developmental um, progress, inhibits uh, cardiovascular function, leads to greater chances of mental health issues of various kinds. This is, this is the most heinous kind of policy, and yet the Republicans are completely silent, and it's only Laura Bush and Melania Trump who seem to be speaking up. Oh, good. Well, on that optimistic note, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Jeffrey Howard and Sebastian Borger. More shortly. Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first, we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there, we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vinitaly, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister, with me are Jeffrey Howard and Sebastian Borger. And let's look now at Germany, where it looks like Audi chief executive Rupert Stadler will be doing all his Vorsprung Dutch technique in the Stateville prison from now on. Police squad reference there for those of you who enjoyed it. Uh, Mr. Stadler has had his collar felt in connection with the diesel emissions scandal, which broke a few years back when it was revealed that Volkswagen, which owns Audi, had been fitting their cars with devices which enabled them to cheat emissions tests. Audi has recalled nearly a million cars in the last year. The police who lifted Mr. Stadler explained that they feared that he may try to suppress evidence. Um, Sebastian, how big a story has this been in Germany over the last couple of years? Huge. I would think. Huge, absolutely huge. And today, of course, again, I think that's... uh, uh, to Ma- Angela Merkel's advantage, that that uh, finally people are talking about something else than than minor details of of the government's immigration policy. This is really serious. I mean, uh, Stadler for for some unknown reason. I mean, which must have to do something with the Byzantine goings on in the Volkswagen uh, conglomerate uh, has survived, while six members of his board have had to go because of this uh, he's still there um and and uh, and you know it's, i mean it you it, it takes a lot of um guts to stay around but it takes also a lot of stupidity if you're if you're um your home is being searched by the authorities and they and you 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 are stupid enough to leave evidence that you are planning to pervert the pervert the course of justice that's what it is you know influence witnesses and 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 destroy uh, evidence material to the case then you know um this is this is what follows uh, jeffrey speaking as a non-german do you do you feel like germany's brand for want of a better word has been at all dented by this because a, a big part of what germany has projected to the world in recent decades is a reputation for being uh, a, a, a manufacturing nation of making high-end, prestigious, solid, reliable, yet stylish things epitomised by nothing more than its upscale cars. Does this make a difference to what people think about Germany? I don't think so. If anything, this um, aggressive prosecution of Volkswagen only bolsters um, the sense that Germany is not only a country that produces great products, but also a, a country clearly very much committed to basic principles of justice and the rule of law. I mean, there's a huge appetite across the West for companies that engage in malfeasance of various various sorts to be held accountable. And I think people have a sense that for too long, corporate wrongdoing is just built into the cost of doing business and companies just are prepared to risk um, being subjected to large fines if any criminal activity they engage in is uh, is found out. And I think having the prospect of, of people at the very top going to prison, well, I think have the effect of restoring people's faith in the criminal justice system um, of their country. And I think even from abroad, I think a lot of people are going to look at this and say, good on the German government for doing this. Sebastian, what effect is it having on German consumers? Are Germans less likely to drive VWs or Audis than they might have been a couple of years ago? They are extremely pissed off, you know. (laughs) No, seriously, because, you know, they were sold... Uh, these diesel cars um, 
basically on the premise that they were good for the environment and and Germans being conscious of the environment in great numbers bought these cars and turn around and they have lost all value that which is which is a problem obviously um, and I th think as Jeffy pointed out I, I think it's it's interesting it's been a slow burning investigation compared to the Americans I think but um, but clearly there are very tough um, uh, um, public prosecutors who are who are following that up i mean i've this is munich 2 munich 1 is for the city munich 2 is for the region which includes ingolstadt the the place where audi is based uh, i used to be a crime report in munich we always knew if munich 2 got uh, that <laughs> a bit between their teeth you know you better you You, you better watch out. They, they, they. Um, there was a huge Siemens scandal in the 90s. Again, Munich too, where the was the public prosecutor's office. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that they will get very tough, and this guy m may not see um, the light of day for a while. Okay, well, finally tonight, to the world of cinema. On paper, casting John Travolta as the lead in a biopic of New York mob boss John Gotti doesn't seem a terrible idea. Travolta is a fine actor. Gotti's story, while hardly uplifting, is interesting. On screen, it appears to be a different matter. The imaginatively titled Gotti has been delivered a merciless kicking by crickets... Crickets? Crickets. Critics. <laughs> There were cri um, there's a whole crickets thing, owls chirruping in the rafters, coyotes howling on the plain tumbleweed thing that I could try and extrapolate from this wreck of a sentence. I'm just going to read it again. The imaginatively titled Gotti has been delivered a merciless kicking by critics who have endured previews, relegating it to that dismal strata of the dumper that is a 0% rating on the review's aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Jeffrey, I don't know about you, I'm actually now quite curious to see it. Yeah, I really want to see it, too. I mean, it sounds pretty entertaining. Um, the trouble is if they just said, yeah, it's all right, big deal, five yeah. out of ten, you wouldn't be at all interested, would you? Exactly. I mean, if the stories, the story sounds like a pretty decent story. So how I mean, how could they screw this one up, right? It's this great biopic. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to go see it. Um, Sebastian, are, are you one of those people who derives perverse enjoyment from watching terrible movies? Absolutely not. Really? Life is too short. Oh, go on. I, I do enjoy a good bad biopic. There's a whole genre of them about about <laughs> members of the British royal family, some of which are magnificent. You mean the crime? Well, that's that's of course the Netflix series. I haven't that's, actually seen that. But there's a whole world of like biopics of minor royals oh, awful, and, and royal, royal romances. No, no, and so you don't on. want. No, read a good book instead. Really? Yes. Oh, come on. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I do have a theory, though, that we are in... I, I, the reason I'm pleased to see a film, or indeed any work of art, <laughs> getting an absolute thrashing is that having come up through the ranks as a music critic, it is my contention that we are far too kind, or that critics are far too kind, yeah. by and large. Because pretty much all books ever made, ever written are unreadable, all films ever made are almost all films are unwatchable, and almost all music is terrible, and yet, and yet everything sort of gets a three-star review. Very good point, I think. Very good point. And I, I have to say, I have that problem sometimes here, when I'm, when I'm faced with a book in English, uh, and, and, and want to explain to the readers... Is it good or bad? Well, if it's bad, I'm not writing about it. Simple as that, because German readers have, have better things to do than write about good books. So all I'm doing is I'm writing about good books. Uh, so, so in that sense, I think that's a very, I think that's a very important point. Um, you said you're going to go and see Gotti, Jeffrey. Um, if it's really bad, are you a walker-outer? Have you previously walked out of any films that you have gone to the movies to see? 
I have walked out of movies before, although I can't recall here now what movies I've I've walked out of. I must say, thinking about Gandhi made me think of this um another terrible John Travolta movie, this nineteen ninety seven movie Battle... Face Off. I thought you I thought you're about to drop Battlefield Earth into, no. into contention no, because, ne- because that, never, that is astounding. I never saw Battlefield Earth. That's his weird no. Scientologist space opera. Right. No, I'm thinking of the nineteen ninety seven film Face Off. That with, is stupid. With John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, where Nicolas Cage plays some devious terrorist crime boss who's incarcerated, but they want to visit his uh, his old uh, colleagues in prison. And so John Travolta pulls uh, Nicolas Cage's face off and puts it on his own face. As so he one can go pr- As one one. And so he can go pretend to be him. Meanwhile, hell, he's doing this. Nick Cage is freed from prison, somehow finds John Travolta's face, puts that on, and goes and lives <laughs> with his family and impersonates him. It's a really bad movie, but uh, it is one of my mother's favorite movies. No, well, hi to Jeffrey's mom if Indeed. you're listening. Um, I, I, I walked out of Moulin Rouge. I walked out of Goethe, which you won't know, and, uh, and that, just, it's just as that's, well. That's as opposed to Gotti. <laughs> yes, that's right. Another terrible biopic, yes. What, what, what but this, I can also tell you that... Was this an actual biopic of the philosopher? Of the of the yes indeed yes terrible absolutely terrible after f- about seventeen minutes I had I was gone um, life's too short but but also uh, a terrible film Titanic awful film far it, 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 far too long it is bad I I, I, I remember seeing that and I it, it, I don't think I actually walked out of it because I think I was somewhere in I Switzerland. never made it onto the boat I, I mean was, it takes I, too long I, to I, get I, on I was, the... I was somewhere in Switzerland where I knew full well there was nothing else to do that evening so I thought I I I'd just stick with it but I I do remember thinking the people sort of freezing in the Atlantic and just sort of regarding them somewhat wistfully and thinking they think they've got problems there's another two hours of this. <laughs> Um, yeah, Gotti. I'm, 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 I am, I am quite curious. This is this, this is the trouble. It's like, it's, it's like when you read through a music magazine and you see all those reviews saying there's six out of ten, seven out of ten. The only records I want to hear are the nine or ten out of ten or the one or two. But I love a business like the film industry where the where that website is called Rotten Tomatoes. And <laughs> I still don't know why you're so mad about Moulin Rouge. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, don't start me. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Jeffrey Howard and Sebastian Borger. Thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. The Daily has more on the day's main stories at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>